Good morning. Somebody asked me if there were prizes today. Thanks, Sam. The biggest transformation in my life happened when as a young adult, I surrendered my life to Jesus. It was a seismic shift in my life, a profound rearrangement of my values and my practices. And that center of gravity has never changed since that day. Many other things have changed, but the center has remained the same. I cannot tell you what finding the rock of all ages meant to someone like me, who searched in many wild places for meaning and truth. Confusion was replaced by liberation. And I have joined a global community and of fellow disciples on this journey with Jesus. I discovered love at the center of the universe. And I discovered the crucial difference between the creator who made everything and created things. And this paradigm shift helped me also in my immersion uh, in the world of plants and their healing properties. Plants and trees and animals are amazing, but they are created, and they also worship the king. And today we're going to go to uh, look into a really important topic of metamorphosis, or transformation, so beautifully observed in nature. And nowhere more drastically than in the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. Our boys could not get over the marvel of seeing uh, silkworms in, in a little shoe box, um, uh, spin silk around them into a, a cocoon, and then weeks later, these fat, white silk moths would emerge. What a miracle. And of course, we all never tire of watching new shoots spring up right now in spring of the barren soil or seemingly dead branches. Metamorphosis is truly miraculous. And as we broach the subject of transformation in this ongoing series of recovering, rediscovering the gospel of Jesus, I would like to ask three important questions. Why, who, and how? Why is transformation important? What is the goal? Secondly, who is the source of transformation? And thirdly, how is transformation possible? Not just individually, but communally. What is God's role and what is our role? So we'll start with the most important question, why? One of the most watched TED Talks of all times is Simon Sinek's talk about the power of why. In it, he argues that we often start with the wrong questions, like how 
to do something or what to do, instead of first asking why. So first we look at the big picture and how transformation relates to our series. How does it fit within God's wider purpose for history, for his story? In scripture, we see four main movements from creation to the fall, to redemption through Jesus' death and resurrection, to recreation, from the first garden to the ultimate garden city where God's kingdom is fully restored. And we are told a vital truth in Genesis 1, that we are created in the image of God, but that through our rebellion against the king, the image of God in us is marred, it's deformed, and that God is at work to restore this image, his glory in the world. The gospel, the good news, encompasses a promise of transformation, of metamorphosis, along with the gift of his empowering spirit. God's ultimate goal is the kingdom restored, destructive forces driven out, and the healing of all creation. His heart is for all the universe, and we are invited into this story, into the king's mission, to bring healing and redemption and restoration to our world, in our cities, in our families, in our neighborhoods. We all long, and in biblical language, we groan, we yearn for the healing and restoration. And I know each one of us here experience pain and suffering in various ways, and we long for wholeness. We know the kingdom is breaking in and will one day be fully restored, no matter how furiously the darkness fights the light, and no matter how dim the light seems. In fact, as many of you know, it is often in those dark times of waiting and longing that the profoundest changes happen. God's kingdom is near, Jesus said, and we are invited in to follow the king and to apprentice under him. The universe is his kingdom. It belongs to him. He made it. He rules over it. He has all authority on heaven and on earth. And we are created in his image. And therefore, we only find our true selves in union with him, in allegiance to this king. Jesus warned in scripture of many pseudo-leaders who would lure us to follow them, but they have no birthright over us. They don't know how we are made. I cannot express enough how freeing this revelation was to me, and I hope Maybe someone today listening, will, it will do the same in them. In the beautiful words of St. Augustine, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you.
Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. My mom is an absolute angel, but there is one thing that she hates with a passion. It's when we four daughters try to make her declutter her house or get rid of old stuff. Some of you might be able to relate. We had to learn it's her house. She and my dad rule over it. We are guests when we go to her house. And it's the same with this world. It's God's house. The universe is his temple. The church, this church, is his temple. My body is his temple. I don't own any of it. And it's astonishing how much we mess up by ignoring this simple truth. Paul said in Romans, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I knew instantly we were in good hands when as a new Granville Chapel board member, the very first words I heard from the new board chair in our first meeting were these, Lord, this is your church. We need to always remind ourselves of this big picture. The overarching message of God's word is that God's creation ever since the fall, ever since the rebellion against the rightful king, is in the process of recreation. Right after the fall, this incredible promise was made. The seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. And as we heard throughout this series, the people of God waited anxiously for this promised seed who would crush the enemy, the Messiah. It wasn't Abraham, it wasn't David, it wasn't John the Baptist, but then when the time was full, he did come, not on a throne, but in a trough. Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, God incarnate. And what was his message? What was the gospel he preached? He proclaimed in Mark 1, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news that the long-awaited king has come. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus was not looking for card-carrying converts to Christianity, but he was looking for apprentices in the kingdom of God. And he was on a mission. He had work for them to do. 
He called them to leave their old life behind, to follow him and to become like him. I love this quote by John Mark Homer, who I had the, the joy of um, hearing speak the other day here in Vancouver. He said, for Jesus, salvation is less about getting you into heaven and more about getting heaven into you. And Paul reiterates this command in his letter to the Romans. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God had long promised through his prophet Jeremiah that his desire has always been for his people to have his law written on their hearts, to live out not merely the letter of the law, but its deepest intentions. In Jeremiah we read, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God's ultimate goal is a people transformed from the inside out, living in allegiance and love to their rightful king as part of the renewal and the redemption of all creation. The gospel is far larger than a narrow call to individual salvation. So do we talk about the gospel how Jesus talked about the gospel? Or how his followers, Peter and Paul, talked about the gospel? Or have we narrowed it to a set of doctrines to believe so that we can eventually go to heaven? Do we present apprenticing under Jesus as optional, as sort of like a, a side dish for eager beavers? How we understand the gospel determines how we approach discipleship. And that's why this teaching series that Sam in, embarked us on is so important. It lays such an important foundation. The gospel is more than about personal salvation. It's about the kingdom of God and about Jesus' kingship. So the primary question is, question is not how can I get saved or how can I go to heaven? The real question is, the identity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus who is called the Messiah? If Jesus is the king, then discipleship is about allegiance to this King Jesus. It's less about a transaction and more about transformation. And this more holistic view of the gospel has very practical implications. It means that we are accountable to someone outside of us, someone greater than just my own ego. You will be hard pressed when you read through the New Testament not to stumble over the word disciple or student or apprentice. It's mentioned 268 times. The king longs to transform us into his likeness. So our conversion experience, when we receive Jesus, uh, uh, salvation through Jesus' death is not the end, but the beginning of an entire new life, a journey of becoming more and more like him, a new creation. Discipleship is not optional, it is central. 
like the songwriter Isaac Watts said in 1707, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Secondly, I want to talk about the question, who? We're asking who transforms? Who is the catalyst behind transformation into the image of God? What is God's role in transformation? What is our role? Let's go to our passage in Thessalonians that um, Claire read for us. Paul wrote this letter to this thriving church as a spiritual father to his children. In verse 5, he said, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. The Thessalonians did not enroll in a 10-step self-actualization program, but they were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says later, they turned from idol worship to the living God, and they received a beautiful gift of the Spirit, joy in the midst of suffering. We read in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. They repented. They endured, they imitated, they lived out the gospel. And in turn, as we see in verse 7, they became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. That is incredible metamorphosis that would make a butterfly blush. The word spirit is ruach in Hebrew and pneuma in Greek, and it's the same word that is used for wind or breath. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he did not send them alone, not on their own, not in their own strength. He said, or we read in John, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. He gave us his spirit to empower us with his capacities. We do his work by his power. There is such a beautiful synergy when we work not for God, but with God. In John 14, we read, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. What an incredible promise. We will do even greater works, not in our own strength, but through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate source of our transformation. God is still doing his work through his spirit. And before his ascension, Jesus promised, I will send you a helper, a paraclete, a counselor, an advocate to be with you. And when his spirit comes to make his home in us, he does something very miraculous. He plants tiny seeds in our hearts and slowly over time grows them into delicious fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is becoming more like Jesus. Remember how before the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost, where were the disciples? They fled. They were hiding away in fear. But then they received power. They received the Spirit, and they went out and changed the world. And now I want to turn to our third question, a very practical question. How? are we being transformed? Do we have any role to play? How does it happen? How do we mature and grow? I want to make a disclaimer from the beginning. When we talk about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, we are not talking about salvation by works. We're not earning anything by spiritual practice. It's really important to understand. Spiritual disciplines are simply a means of growing toward the life that God offers. Think of a trellis like you gardeners here. We put up trellises to make some of our plants grow so that they can go grow towards the light. They need a structure. Spiritual disciplines create a space to access the presence and the power of the Spirit. And so we can be transformed from the inside out. We're not trying to control life, but we want to be mastered by the king. We surrender to a power far beyond our own. So how do we create space to mature and be transformed? How do we move from good intentions to actual transformation? We intentionally, and the emphasis is on the word intentionally, design our lives to give Jesus space to form us. And this involves, first of all, slowing down. As those who know me know, uh, I walk really fast. Even my six foot six husband complains that I walk too fast. At work, they call me Speedy Gonzalez. So I wanted to learn to walk slower. And somebody gave me a trick. They said, if you put your hands behind your back, it automatically slows you down. There's no way you can walk fast with your hands on your back. It automatically puts you in a posture of, oh, nice flowers. Oh, look at that. It works. And that's what disciplines or postures or practices do to us. They put us into the right posture. What we do habitually forms us. Neurologist tells us that habits will rewire our central nervous system, what, what they call neuroplasticity. Habits form grooves. What we see and think and do habitually forms us. And those habits determine where our life is going to go. Is it your desire to be shaped into his image? Are you arranging your days around Jesus-shaped habits? In this, on this topic, we can learn a great deal about uh, this from ancient saints. 
who all had various practices and rhythms built into their lives to open themselves to the Spirit's power to be transformed. I want to make an important uh, observation from our text. Look again at our passage. In verse 3, uh, we get a glimpse of the, uh, the motivation in the Thessalonians' hearts. Look at the structure of that verse. It says their, uh, their work was produced by faith, their labor was prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. And this same trio, faith, love, hope, does anybody get an echo of another passage? Yes, thank you, Claire. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul uses that same tree of faith, love, and hope. And he even tells you which one is the most important of the three. Which is it? He says love is the most important. He says, if you do all these things, but you do not have love, you're what? You're just a, a noisy person. You're just making noise. Paul's words. So as we talk about practical ways of being transformed, let's remember this. I love this quote, uh, also by John uh, Mark Homer. Love is the litmus test, the metric of all spiritual maturity. It's not how much we pray, or how much we give, or how long we fast, or how much we study. It is love, that's the ultimate test. Are we becoming more and more a person of love, of agape love? And there's a really important truth that we need to acknowledge. Formation happens to all of us. The world is constantly forming us. We are constantly becoming and changing. So the question is not really, are we being formed, but by whom? If we are not intentionally formed by Jesus, we will unintentionally be formed by someone or something else. So transformation is possible, but it doesn't come accidentally. And more than we care to acknowledge, I think, we are greatly influenced by the zeitgeist of radical individualism, our idol of autonomy, our self-obsession, and our desire for instant gratification. Our digitally distracted and materialistic age leaves us stressed and anxious. We are deeply steeped in our culture if we acknowledge it or not. We're like that frog in the, uh, in the pot. Yes, we pride ourselves that we are free, autonomous spirits, and yet, in actuality, we are often unaware that we are manipulated and exploited by others. But we have a choice. The good news is that we have a choice. We can choose our master. We can be inadvertently shaped by pseudo-saviors and false prophets, or we can choose the way of the crucified and risen king, 
who offers abundant life. So how do we go from spiritual birth to spiritual maturity from meat, from milk to meat? Jesus simply said, come follow me. He invites us to learn kingdom living with him. It does not happen automatically. It takes a willingness to make space and time and priority to apprentice under Jesus. And it takes discomfort, something we do not like. It takes rearranging our lives and our priorities. To be disciples of Jesus takes cultivating practices that will help us enter into his presence so that we can see him and know him. It takes beholding, it takes contemplating the crucified and risen Christ. I love the song, Behold Him. I didn't know what that word meant, but now I love it, Behold Him. It doesn't just mean glancing at, it means gazing, it means seeing, truly seeing, it means beholding Him. It's when we spend time in his presence, beholding him, that we are slowly changed into his image. And as a result, we slowly start to reflect him. He teaches us how to live, how to pray, how to forgive, how to fight for justice. He infuses his values deep into our very being. I love how Dallas Willard defines discipleship. He said a disciple is someone whose ultimate goal is to live the li their life the way Jesus would live it if he were me. What would Jesus do if he were me now in 2024? a mother of four children, working, doing all these things, or if he were you, what would Jesus do if he were in your spot? As we behold him, we discover what he loves, and doing so, we have our own desires transformed. There's a beautiful uh, line in the song, Shine, Jesus Shine, that we used to sing in the old days. Uh, one line says, as we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness. One of my very favorite verses in all of scripture is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus said to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip? Uh, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The glory of God is visible in Jesus. 
Paul says in Colossians, the sun is the image of the invisible God. Just read that again. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When we look at Jesus, we behold the Father's heart and we learn what he loves. We learn about his mercy and goodness and justice. When we behold Jesus, we see the fullness of the Father. And we need to acknowledge that we are shaped by the images that we view. Images disciple us. They teach us how to think about the world. They evoke desires in us, and they reinforce our habits. We become what we behold, what we behold often. So what do you give worth to? Worship. What do you behold often? What do I behold often? We become what we love. So as we fix our eyes on Jesus in a habitual way, we express our love to him. How? With our obedience to his teaching. He said in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. His word is our daily bread. So we need to immerse ourselves regularly in his word and then act on it. Remember the fool who built the house on the sand? I always thought that was the one that didn't believe, but in actuality it says that's the one that doesn't do the word, doesn't apply the word, just listens to it and gets a big head, but doesn't do it. Eugene Peterson called discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. The women's uh, Bible study, we did a whole study about the beautiful study by Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. It does not come easy. It's slow. It's an imperfect process. It involves suffering and discomfort. Our sin and our brokenness, our ego and our addictions to comfort fight against our desire for sanctification. Obedience requires us to look honestly inside our own hearts, look honestly at our motives. It requires confession and repentance, turning around. It, it requires saying no to things. It requires taking up our cross. In that analogy of the fruit, pruning is needed in order to bear good fruit. Or in Jesus' word, words, to lose our life is to find it. In Matthew, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Cross bearing is not a one time decision, but it's a daily task to live the cruciform life. Bates, my, uh, Matthew Bates said, spirit-led obedience is the hallmark of genuine discipleship. Obedience led by the spirit. And it turns out that the way of the cross 
proves to be the way of liberation. To walk in the footsteps of our King, we find life. Jesus' call to deny, deny ourselves is actually liberating. Our sinful hearts, our woundedness, our sin-sick souls will quickly want to find relief and comfort. We will want to return to that good food, those onions and leek in Egypt. But we can trust as we behold the righteous king. He is the one that brings true freedom and healing. I decided recently to learn to juggle. I don't know why. I heard it's good for the brain. Well, how do you start to maybe one day get to this? I was actually going to give a demonstration, but I'm sure I would have fallen off the stage in the process, so I won't do that. So well, how do you get to that? You get a good teacher, in my case, a resident at Parkdale, and you juggle with others. You start with one ball. You toss it from one hand to the other, and then you take two balls, and then three. You practice often. You put the juggling balls in a very prominent place in your house so that you see them and you're reminded to practice just a little bit, a few minutes every day. And the same is true for spiritual formation. I love the psychologist John Gottman's podcast title. He titled it, Small Things Often. He says, thinking small can make a huge difference. It's the compound effect at work. And in his great book that I hope uh, everyone will read, called Thank You, Please, and I'm Sorry, by Rod Wilson, who's a psychologist and was the former president of Regent College, says the same thing. Small things done often, like saying, I'm sorry, or thank you, can compound to big changes. So knowing why transformation is essential in God's kingdom and who the source of this transformation is, are we willing to create space to form practices like a trellis for fruit to grow on and expose deeper, ever deeper layers to this transformative power of the spirit? We are being formed, we're not forming ourselves, but we do have a role to play. Transformation is God's work. Our role is to make deeper layers of our inner being available to God for him to come and transform and heal us and save us. So in closing, I want to ask a few questions to help us apply these truths. What images are discipling you? What images are discipling me? What small, regular 
practices can I incorporate into my life? Can you incorporate into your life small pockets of silent beholding, of slowing down? Where are you resistant to expose those deeper, those secret layers of your heart to God? What is God's spirit stirring in your heart? What small steps is he asking you to take? Are you, am I, becoming little by little, a little bit more a person of love to those close to me? How well am I, how well are you reflecting Jesus? And how are we doing this in community? How are we spurring one another on in good works? And what does God have for this little community of Granville Chapel in this rapidly changing and complex world? What new or ancient thing is he leading us to as his church? The answer to this question for a bunch of energetic young guys 60 years ago was seeing the need for theological lay formation and resulted in the founding of Regent College. This is not a guilt trip. It's an invitation. I learned a very important lesson in my nutrition studies. People always ask, is this food good or is it bad? But instead of thinking of food items as good or bad, it's better to look at it on a spectrum. Does consuming this move me a little tiny bit in my desired direction of health and wholeness? Or does it move me a little bit into the other direction? What we consume and absorb forms us, makes us one bite, one image at a time. And it's the same in spiritual formation. We're all on a spectrum, on a journey. And this is why legalistic rule keeping is so detrimental. And apart from making us very judgmental people towards others, it also blinds us to our own idols. Let's make sure that we move in the right direction toward Jesus. And as the darkness increases, let us together press on toward the goal to win the prize by the power of the Holy Spirit until we see him face to face. John said, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, our ultimate and most 
beautiful metamorphosis. Amen.